Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Gangster Rapper Posse Member. Mr. Gangster Rapper Posse Member. Behind every great man, there is a woman. And behind that woman, 14 guys with sideways baseball caps and really baggy pants. Those pants are giant. What do you do when you have no talent whatsoever? Attach yourself to someone who does. A kiss on my skin, so. Gold tooth. Check. Giant gold medallion. Check. Royalties from record sales. No check. Help him on the route. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Baron of the Brown Nose. Then crack open another 13 for the rest of the crew. Mr. Gangster Rabbit Posse Member. Bud Light Beer and I suppose St. Louis Missouri. Ball players and their stories. Y'all heard? 
So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki, Hap Man, Hap Podcast Machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, Seamheads? What's juicy? Welcome into my dojo this week, you freaks. Backwards K Pod, where every week I like to take these deep historical and biographical dives into the baseball universe and break down the moments. The players, the characters, the stadiums, the pop culture that have been woven and stitched into the fabric of America since, well, since George Washington loved his rounders all the way up to today here in 2023. Hello everybody, I'm Jake Robinson, I got your hookup, holler if you hear me, and man, this past month has flown by for me. We are now headed into September with most teams Having, you know, between 30 and 32 games left to play as Major League um, is now officially in that third, you know, last third of the season. The 2023 season is coming down the stretch and teams are now positioning themselves to hopefully play their most consistent baseball of the year. The NL East and the West, as well as the AL Central, barring a collapse from the Dodgers, Braves, and Twins, they're all pretty much in. The Brewers are distancing uh, themselves from the Cubs and the Reds and the NL Central. Man, I'm not calling it yet, but the Northsiders and Cincy, they're running out of time to win this pennant. The Orioles and Rays need to figure out who's going to win the East and who's going to take that top AL wildcard spot. The Orioles hold a slim advantage over Tampa in the standings, but there's still plenty of fight left right there. I'm looking up now. The Orioles have just beaten the White Sox game one of the series nine to nothing. Grayson Rodriguez. I mean, he's a freak. The Orioles hold a slim advantage over Tampa in the standings, but there's still plenty of time left. The, the Mariners are one of the most quietest kept dangerous teams out there right now. The AL West is still wide open, but Seattle, as of the time. Uh, that I go to air has sole possession of first place in the AL West after the Rangers have stood atop the mountain for most of that year. And the defending world champion Houston Astros are lurking in the shadows just a fingertip away. Both wildcard races are essentially up for grabs, and many are based on who wins their respective divisional pennants. In the AL, you have Baltimore, Tampa Bay, Seattle, Texas, Houston, and uh, Toronto with a fading Boston as wildcard possibilities. And in the NL, you have Filthy, who is almost, in my eyes, a lock at this point to win a wildcard berth. Not quite near that there yet, but almost. But then you have the Cubs, Snakes, Giants, Reds, and the fading Fish fighting for uh, two spots, basically. The main difference between AL and NL wildcard races is the AL East and West is still up for grabs, while the NL has uh, more certainty about who will win those divisions. And those five teams I just mentioned, they're basically pointing out for two wildcard spots. So, 
We have a month of games to figure it all out, and I'll be with you every step of the way. And what looks to be a frenetic finish here to the 2023 season. And, you know, with that being said, I want to get right after it this week with a topic I've been looking forward to for quite some time. As many of you know, I'm black and Japanese descent. And I had a really close, intimate relationship with my grandmother, Haruko, who was from Okinawa, Japan. She met my grandfather during World War II while serving food to U.S. US soldiers for the USO. Uh, she used to make the biscuits. And my grandfather used to always come back with seconds. He, he enjoyed the biscuits, but really he was there to flirt with the sexy little Japanese biscuit maker. Nah, well, well, well I see you, Pippin. Eventually... He wins her over, they fall in love, he gets married, uh, they begin building a family of 10 kids, and my grandmother, Haruka, she loved America when they moved here, she couldn't speak a lick of English, and for her first years here, her eldest daughter, my mother, served as her interpreter, but she did everything that she could to acclimate to her new life and new country, new culture, she was proud of her roots, but she taught herself the language mainly through uh, her children, but also, you know, a lot of Bob Barker, May He Rest in Peace, and the Guiding Light soap opera, uh, you know, but she, she worked on her English constantly, watching TV, listening to her children and her grandchildren. She truly was this beautiful person inside and out. Sometimes I wish everyone in the world could have met her and been touched by her warmth and compassion. And I know as human beings, we try to mythologize people who have come and gone. But she was special, truly, truly special. One of the many things Haruko loved was serving her growing army of a family. And many times growing up, she would fix me a hot plate, sit with me while I watched sports on her little TV set. We sat by the kitchen table and she would regale me with her stories. You know, she'd speak about, you know, our samurai family ancestral heritage. Or like the times as a young girl she was in the rice paddy fields up to her knees of water with like bombs exploding all around her. The first time she saw American soldiers come out of the woods in her village and she couldn't believe the size of these American men. You know, or quite frankly, their generosity. And when she moves to Fort Meade, Maryland, and the old white lady she's playing bridge with, they ask her if her black husband has a tail. And when she got home, she kept looking at her husband quizzically as he undressed out of his uniform. And my grandmother asked her, well, why are you looking at me this way? And she summons up the courage to ask him, uh, JC, what happened to your tail? <laughs> well, uh, of course, he's like, what the hell are you talking about? And she explains the conversation she had with the ladies and her broken English. And my grandfather told her she's no longer, uh, he don't want her hanging around with those old ladies anymore. And, you know, me and my grandmother, we did this dance for years. She, she would prepare my food. I'd sit and watch sports. She would tell me these amazing stories. I mean, she was a great storyteller. And as a history buff, it, for me, it was like heaven. But... Often, you know, we'd be quiet, enjoy each other's company, watch sports. She loved competition. My grandmother was a gambler at heart. I think she enjoyed watching the unknown kind of play out in front of us. And when I was a kid at the table, eating her food, watching TV, there was literally one Japanese player in the Major League uh, Baseball that I was aware of. And he played for my beloved Orioles, utility man, Lin Sakata. Even though... Uh, 
you know, he played sporadically, her face would light up when Earl would put him on the field. And I always wondered, you know, as a kid, how come there are no players in the majors who look like my grandmother? And one of the greatest thrills in my life was having the chance to watch Hideo Nomo and Ichiro play baseball with my grandmother. Not only were they real major leaguers, but they were elite in their prospective eras. Every Nomo strikeout, every Ichiro base hit, it made my heart smile watching her have pride. And my grandfather's favorite team was the Dodgers, which made Nomo even more special to us. I remember us talking with tears in our eyes one day about how much my grandfather would have loved watching Hideo Nomo pitch. She was the one woman in my life who loved me with no conditions, despite all of my flaws and, and mistakes I, I made. She was always there, my, my fucking rock. And almost everything I did in my life today is in honor to her. She believed in me when most did not. She knew I was always a dreamer, and she never discouraged me from having my dreams. Ever since she passed, I have tried to live my life Haruko strong, like a samurai searching for perfection. And my point is, when I think of Nomo, I think about the summer of 1995, sitting with the love of my life, and being proud of our heritage. And that's what Hideo Nomo means to me. And I'm so proud to get after this week and collect his story. So, without further ado, it's time to load up this BKP time travel chocho here at Terrapin Station. Catch these time-bending wormholes. If you guys could kiss and hug your loved ones, I'd like to clear this platform and call All Aboard! As I set our time and destination this week for August 31st, 1968, Osaka, Japan, to witness the life and times of a true baseball pioneer, Hideo Nomo. So, alright, look, in order to give you the full scope of Hideo's baseball life and career, I feel like I need to take you back before his birth to give you the full perspective and landscape of the baseball relationship between Japan's Nippon Baseball League and the Major League uh, Baseball brand here in the States. In 1996, as a member of the Dodgers, Hideo Nomo did the impossible by no-hitting the Rockies inside the vaunted Coors Canaveral launching pad that houses the Colorado baseball franchise, a game I will certainly dig into uh, this week. Truly one of the grittiest and most improbable starts by a major league pitcher in the history of the game. But I digress. More on that in a bit. Anyway, flash forward nine years later. Nomo is a journeyman, 36-year-old hurler, but in that short span of nine years, the complexion of Major League Baseball had changed for the better, and the pioneering Nomo was the number one reason why. In 2003, left-handed power hitter Hideki Matsui left the Nippon and his country behind to sign a three-year deal with the New York Yankees, and Matsui, at his press conference, he tells the New York and Japanese press that he had often dreamed of being, uh, you know, testing his medal in the United States for years, but only now was he convinced that it was a possibility. So, the question begs to be asked, why would the most decorated superstar in the Nippon Leagues, the man nicknamed Godzilla because of the way he used to destroy baseballs, why would it take this long in his career 
to live out his Major League Baseball dream. Well, the truth is, it really wasn't never a talent issue with the Pioneers like Arabu, Ichiro, Matsui, and of course, Nomo. It was more cultural issues between the two nations that caused the impediments of baseball growth. Between 1996 and 2003, 14 Japanese ballplayers immigrated to the United States to test their skills against the best of the planet. Before 1996, only two Japanese-born baseball players ever played before American C-Mets. Now, I told you, you had a few guys like Len Sakata, who was pure Japanese descent, but he was born in Hawaii. He was a super, you know, utility player, most notably for the Orioles in the late 70s and 80s, early 80s. But, really, you only had two Japanese-born players to play in the majors by 1996. Hideo Nomo and Masanori Murakami in the mid-60s. And the Murakami story, it ties to Nomo. And it's important to understand the gap between 1966 and 1994. Remember, between 1996 and 2003, you had 14 Japanese ballplayers leave their country to play in the States. Between 64 and 96, you had a total of 32 years. You had only two. Why? Well, here's what happened, Freaks, and thanks for asking. In 1964, the Nippon Professional Baseball League, it wasn't as established a brand as it is today. It was a league abundant in talent, but it was still finding its legs. So back then, the states and Japan had like this cultural exchange program where the baseball crazy nation of Japan would send a few of their guys to the United States to learn more about the American way of baseball and bring the knowledge and experience back to their island and learn from them. Sounds like a great idea, right? What could possibly go wrong? So, the non-Kai Hawks, they said Murakami, and two other players to the San Francisco Giants, who immediately sent the two ball players to the Fresno single-A baseball team on their farm. And it became evident very quickly that Murakami, he's got this filthy stuff on the mound, and he's MLB caliber talent right now. He ended up winning the single-A Rookie of the Year award, which of course encouraged the Giants to bring him up at the end of the year, give him a chance to help the club and their playoff push down the stretch. Now, back home in Japan, there was initial excitement as the Japanese press were trumpeting the exploits of Murakami from across the Pacific Ocean, and there was considerable baseball pride for a country that had only had organized baseball for a little over 35 years uh, now here in 1964. So in his nine Major League Baseball games in 1964... Out of the Giants' bully, he goes 1-0, 15 strikeouts, 15 innings pitched, 1 walk. He averages 9 strikeouts per 9, a fantastic uh, ratio in 1964, 1.67 FIP, a minuscule .60 whip, a 180 ERA, 53 batters faced, and a 202 ERA+. plus. Obviously... The Giants love this new arm. And at the end of the year, they sent $10,000 to the Hawks to keep the hard-throwing southpaw on the Giants roster. 
at $10,000 in 1965. It's worth about $97,000 here in the 2023 economy. And it's worth around 740 yen back in 1965. However, the Hawks are trying to win as well. They see the success that Murakami is enjoying in the States. And they know if he, you know, if he's beating on MLB hitters this way, that's an arm they want back on their roster. So they begin this blackball campaign against his honor and his name back in Japan. And that's like one of the worst things you can culturally do to a Japanese person. They begin to call him a traitor back home, the symbol of the Japanese athlete falling prey to the opulence and decadence of American celebrity and culture. And the very same people who were encouraging him in his quest initially have now turned on him. And that was followed by constant harassing uh, messages and conversation with the Nankai Hawks. Finally, after being pressured by the Japanese club, as well as the belligerence his family is receiving back at home, he writes a letter to the Giants owner, Horst Stoneman, that reads, you know, I'm homesick and I, I really want to go back to Japan. So, the Giants brass, after some investigation into the players, you know, radical change of heart here, they deduced that the letter was absolute horseshit, and they decided to keep him for the 1966 season. And, I'm sorry, the 65 season. And Masanori, he proves that 1964 is, is no fluke, as he dominates NL batters out of the bully, in 1965, his 74-3rd innings pits, he strikes out 85 of the 304 batters he faced. He goes 4-1 with a 3.75 ERA, and he finishes 16 games with San Francisco that year and had 8 saves. 1.67 FIP, 106 WHIP, and a 97 ERA+. And while his Giants teammates fall in love with Masanori. The battle for his baseball soul between San Francisco and the Nankai Hawks before the season, it left a residual fracture between the two two leagues that would basically deteriorate over the next four decades. So much so that in 1967, the Japanese and Americans struck a deal that ostensibly said, if you play the Nippon Leagues, that's where you stay, and vice versa. And for all those decades going forward, this is pretty much how it worked. After that second year, Murakami does return to Japan to fulfill his national baseball commitments. He had proven that a Japanese baseball player could have success in the States, but his experience became a political tug-of-war between two nations, and in the end, he returns home to prove he is not a traitor to his Japanese roots. So, as the decades are drifting by... Major League Baseball contracts explode in the late 80s and going into the 90s. There's a huge talent disparity between the MLB and and NBL, and it begins to wind. And going into the 90s, as the world is growing smaller going into the digital age, many baseball players in Japan are watching the MLB product, and they are having dreams. One of those kids was Hideo Nomo. And... Let's shoot it straight. He was sick and tired of being held back by the oppressive Japanese baseball heads. He wanted to know, how good am I? And there's only one way to find out in baseball, how good you truly are. And by God, Nomo is just waiting out his time. And nothing is going to stop him. Like a ninja lurking in the shadows, Nomo has a plan 
for higher ambitions. So he waits. And one of his best baseball friends, Shigatui Hasagawa, who eventually joined the MLB ranks after Nomo, he used to have conversations with him about his dreams and aspirations. To which Hasagawa would tell Nomo to never forget what happened to Murakami. And you're a fool if you ever think you're going to be the one to break the will of the Nippon League brass. You need to rid yourself of these thoughts, Adele. It's never going to happen. And Nomo used to bristle eternally after his friend's advice. It only gave the young Hideo more resolve when people would dismiss his dreams as folly. Like Babe Ruth, Nomo was a savior of the game. Reeling from the 1994 player's strike with attendance and gate receipts bottoming it out all over the, uh, the majors. Like Jackie Robinson, he was a pioneer in race and culture, blazing a new trail and opening the door for others to follow. Like Fernando Valenzuela, he burst on the scene, was the pride of a specific ethnic community in America, yet the game was adored. Uh, he was adored by all races and creeds. Like Louis Tian, he brought flavor to game with a contorted wine up the pool and dazzled his competitors. Like Nolan Ryan, he was a workout freak. His dedication to conditioning and training was legendary. Like Sidney Kovacs, he was a fireballer for the Dodgers, a shooting star on the grand stage that blinded opponents and then faded away. Uh, finally, you know, much like the immortal Negro leaguer Buck O'Neill, his raw stats will probably keep him from inclusion in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but he is one of the most important baseball ambassadors the game has ever had. And while the numbers lack Hall of Fame weight, if you combine all of these qualities into a single ball player, you can better understand his journey and career. And on, on some level... You will be forced to appreciate his career, his legacy, and the undeniable truth that there is no one in the history of the game quite like Hideo Nomo. And here we are, folks. August 31st, 1968, Osaka, Japan, the birth of the legendary Hideo Nomo, who's going to change the face of Major League Baseball forever in about 26 years from today. And this is the industrial section of Osaka City, folks. From the first moment of life, his parents, father Shizuo, and his mother Koyoko have high hopes for their son. They name him Hideo, which translates to excelling man. But it is commonly understood as Superman or hero in Japanese. As a five-year-old, he and his father could always be seen working on the little man's game. By the time he is 12, Hideo knows he is meant to play baseball, and his dreams of playing in the Nippon League is all that consumes him at at an early age. In the fifth grade, Nomo begins using his trademark tornado corkscrew delivery when he pitches. His father was impressed by his baseball aptitude, and Nomo realizes his unorthodox windup is bringing him success as his schoolmates are absolutely befuddled by his mechanics and his overall stuff. Nomo believed that the torque created by his tornado delivery gave his fastball more life and batters had a hard time picking up the ball until it had left his hand and it was hurtling down the pipes at him. By the time Hideo gets to middle school, opposing batters are 
frightened <laughs> by his velocity and lack of control. And there were many times when the youngster would walk the first three batters only to strike out the side. Nomo would move on to legendary Kindai High School, the top high school baseball program in Osaka. The manager of the team would sit down Nomo and always tell him, young man, with that tornado windup of yours, you're never going to make it. And Nomo is a prideful man. And he would, you know, this would be just the beginning of his battle of wills with these old school Japanese coaches. And truth be told, internally, Nomo is like, fuck this guy. He doesn't know anything about me. I'm the best you got, dude. But I'll play along with your scary little baseball theory and nod in agreement. Hideo uses the criticism as inspiration. And he transfers to Seo Industrial High School, where he dominates all opposition and even tosses a perfect game no-hitter with his untraditional and flawed mechanics. Despite his high school numbers and his natural 6 foot 2, 200 pound frame upon graduation in 1987, Nomo fails to capture attention from the pro and college scouts. So he joins the Shin Nitetsu Sakai, which was a company sponsored semi pro team in the Industrial League. It's where Nomo perfects his tornado windup and he begins working on his filthy fork ball. At nights before it starts, Nomo would tape a tennis ball between his middle and index fingers before going to bed to acclimate his hands to the forkball grip in his sleep. In 1988, Nomo earns a roster spot on the Japanese Olympic team for the games in Seoul, South Korea, and he leads his country to a silver medal after garnering attention for his amazing Olympic tournament. Hideo is on the precipice of entering the Nippon League Baseball Draft. Now, the Nippon Baseball League Draft is different than how it's done in America. Multiple teams can select you, and then the winning bid gets the player. Hideo Nomo is selected with the very first pick of the 1989 draft by a record eight different teams. Eventually, the Osaka-based Kinetsu Buffaloes would win his rights, and Nomo would sign a contract with the club and receive a bonus of $1 million U.S. or roughly 100 million yen. $1 million in the United States in 1989 is worth nearly $2.5 million here in the 2023 economy. Before he signed the deal, he informed the club that it was under the contingency that the team would never try to change his mechanics. And the Buffaloes agreed. Upon reporting to the Osaka-based team, Nomo meets Buffalo manager Akira Oji, an easygoing player's coach, and he immediately endears himself on the young Olympic silver medalist from that very first meet and greet. Oji-san assures Nomo he would never tinker with his wind-up mechanics, and it would give him every opportunity to succeed or fail. And Nomo remembers thinking, I can perform for this man. And that's what he does. As Hideo gave his manager every ounce of production he had in his body. Armed with a blazing fastball and a nasty now you see me, now you don't forkball that reads fastball, but it drops on the table as it approaches a dish. Hideo wins League Rookie of the Year, MVP, and the Sal Award, which is the American equivalence of the Cy Young. 
He posts an 18 and 8 record with a 2.91 ERA, 287 strikeouts in 235 innings pitched. He continues to produce for manager Ojisan for the next three years, leading the pack league in wins and strikeouts in each of those seasons. And because of his brilliance and dominance, he was must-see Japanese star in the Nippon. And the fans and media began calling him Tatsumaki, which is Japanese for the tornado. Another person in Nomo's orbit was Masato Yoshi. A veteran pitcher, three years older than uh, Hideo, who took the youngster under his wing. He taught the quiet star and weight, the ins and outs of professional baseball. And he would also tell the kid his intimate dreams of playing baseball one day in the United States. While reminding Nomo the story of Masanari Murakami. The two became very close. And soon, uh, Nomo and Yoshi shared the same dream, as Masato had a strong influence on Nomo when he was pitching back in Japan. At the conclusion of the 1990 season, the Japanese All-Stars beat the Major League All-Stars, winning four games in a best-of-seven series. Nomo's series-clinching performance caught the eye of Major Leaguers, including Ken Griffey Jr., Barry Bonds, Cecil Fielder, and Randy Johnson. In fact, later in the evening after the final game, Randy Johnson spied Nomo in a private uh, dinner at the restaurant he was at, and he approaches him, and he told him, Brother, you got amazing talent, and there is no question you can compete in the majors right now. Hideo Nomo was a big unit admirer, and after hearing this, he was buoyed by, you know, the Mariners' Sal Paul's kind words, with unit singing his praises in his ear. And the strong influence of his uh, teammate, Yoshi. Nomo sat the rest of the dinner in classic Nomo thoughtful and stoic silence. For the first time in his life, he not only knew he was going to try to buck the rigid Japanese baseball establishment, but he knew somehow, some way, he's going to go to America and play against the best in the world. But how? Well, Liddy did he know, opportunity would come in 1995 at the sake of his manager and mentor, Oji-san, who was fired by the Buffaloes and replaced with Japanese Hall of Fame pitcher, Kishi Suzuki, who has an amazing playing resume that holds a 317-238 win-loss record, 3,601 uh, 3, career strikeouts, and he once pitched 340 consecutive games without walking a batter. That's incredible. I'm going to say that one more time. This dude pitched 340 consecutive games without a walk. Kishi Suzuki. So, you're probably thinking, well, these two are going to come together like John and Yoko, and life is going to be good. But that wasn't the case at all. Just as Nomo knew from day one that he could perform for Akira Oji, Nomo knew from the minute he met Suzuki, the two of them are going to have problems. Hideo remained respectful, but in Kishi Suzuki, Nomo sees another one of these out-of-touch, old-school Japanese baseball coaches who ran team operations like a militaristic boot camp instead of a clubhouse of men playing a kid's game. But the major difference between the two was baseball philosophy. Suzuki's advice for coddled pitchers complaining of sore arms was simple. Throw until you die. And Nomo couldn't stand these staunch old 
schooled Japanese pitchers, now coaches from the 60s, explained to him that only throwing the ball more when your arm is sore is the remedy. In the back of his mind, he despises this man as much as he adored OG. Throw until you die. What planet is this moron from? Nevertheless, Nomo is an obedient warrior in the case of his servitude to his teammates. In 61 games that year, Nomo throws more than 140 pitches. The clincher for Nomo is when he threw 187 pitches and a 9-3 victory. And though he's calm in his demeanor and body language, Nomo knows he needs to get away from this maniac. The man has the most absurd pitching philosophy. God bless him in his Hall of Fame career, but this ain't for me. The excessive pitch counts, of course, they took their toll on Nomo's arm in 1994. He was injured most of the season. He finished with an 8-7 record and 114 innings pitched, which was 53% down from his 243 and third innings the year before. As he sat out there throwing those 187 pitches in a 9-3 win, Nomo made up his mind. Whatever it takes, I'm going to America. I'm going to America to play baseball. Thankfully, after the season, he met Japanese baseball super agent Don Nomura, and he left the agent know of his dreams and baseball aspirations. He informed the agent, but he couldn't that uh, you know he can't stand his current manager. He didn't respect him. He didn't trust him with his arm. He wanted out. He wanted more. Which, folks, traditionally in Japanese culture, you know, this is not respected in relation to, to baseball. This this you know this mindset. You know, keeping in line with the culture, the tradition. Nomo signing an agent was a big deal in 1994 Japan. Though Nomura was a former Nippon player himself turned agent, he didn't have one client in Japan. No one had an agent in Japanese baseball then. Not one player in the league had an agent because traditionally agents in Japanese were, uh, Japan were perceived as greediness. In fact, Japanese players didn't win free agency until 1993, but by the uniform contract clause, Nomo could not become a free agent himself until after his 10th year in the league, which would have been around 2000. So agent Nomura, he doesn't blink. He's intent on making his first Japanese client's dream come true. He was sick and tired of the rigid Japanese baseball system himself, and his new client was extending the opportunity to go to war against him. And in his mind, Nomo is the best pitcher in the league, maybe in the world, and he's focused on making history with his client as he begins to scour the laws of the Nippon rule books. You know, they're looking for a loophole. He enlists the aid of California-based baseball agent Arm Tellum, and the two in conjunction finally find the loophole they're looking for. In accordance with the Japanese Uniform Contract Clause, there was a little-known and used voluntary retirement clause hidden in all the legal minutia. The retirement clause that if a player retired, it stated that if a player retired and returned to professional baseball Japan, he was contractually bound to his former team. However, there was no provision for players who retired and went to another country to play. And it never happened before, but there's nothing in the rule, the laws here that say that can't be done. And remember, folks, there's always a loophole. And a lawyer is going to find it. And in this case, two of the best in baseball in Nomura and Tellum. So now you're probably thinking, ah, so that's how he did it. He retired, and then he moved on to L.A. Well, 
Yes, that's how it happened. But it was a little more complex, challenging, and in some ways, more nefarious than that. Nomo couldn't just retire and then move on. The Buffaloes had to approve of him being placed on the inactive retirement list, which inevitably would lead you to ask, well, you know, why the hell would a baseball team approve the 25-year-old baseball, you know, best player on the planet voluntarily on the retirement list? Well, they wouldn't, of course. But Nomo and Nomura concocted a plan to piss the Buffaloes off so much that ultimately management would sign off on it. After the team came to Nomo with a new contract before the 1996 season, which included... Uh, decrease in pay after his injury marred 94 season. Nomo flat out rejects the club's offer and he counters with not only a raise, but a multi-year deal, which was unheard of in the league at this time. The GM gets aggressive with Nomo, questions his character, asks just who the hell do you think you are, asking for a multi-year deal for more money when you know we don't do that. Besides, you have a sore arm. And Nomo is angered by this when he says that. When he remembers, you know, all those unnecessary pitches from the year before that led to his injury in the first place. The leader you employed blew my arm out and you're going to weaponize that against me? Nomo leaves the negotiating table with the Buffalo's front office confused and uncertain about their ace's status with the team. Surely, Nomo-san will come to a senses and submit to our ways and traditions. But Nomo is sick and tired of Japanese tradition. He is intent on making the Buffaloes regret his presence on the team if they force him to do this shit. A month later, he again makes his demands and tells him the price has risen even more. So now, you know, the Buffaloes, they're in the red by now. And they accepted Nomo's retirement threats, voluntarily approved his name on the list, just what Nomura Nomo and Telemad Hopor and Hideo Nomo at the age of 26 has officially retired from the Nippon Professional Baseball League. Within days after the initial shock of the Nomo retirement making its way around the country, there are reports surfacing that Hideo Nomo is actually in negotiations to play baseball in the United States. It was then that at that moment, the Buffaloes realized they got played like a piano as team lawyers scrambled to understand exactly what was happening. After interviewing with several MLB teams, including the Dodgers, Giants, and Mariners, Nomo develops a connection with the Dodgers owner, Peter O'Malley, and he signed with the team in February of 1995. Okay, folks, I think this is where I'm going to take a break. We've spoken about the incredible journey of our protagonist this week, as well as the historical obstacles and Japanese traditions that Nomo-san had to overcome to realize his major league dream. The wheels of history have been set in motion at this point, and Hideo Nomo stands on the verge of changing baseball forever. When I come back, we'll touch on his amazing career, including the improbable no-hitter at Coors Field, and how his impact has touched the baseball universe. Wrap this puppy up. Get this time travel chucho back to Terrapin Station. I'll be right back, folks, with Acts 2 and 3 of the Hideo Nomo Bio. BRB, folks. See you on the other side of the break.
It's the Pod Squad, Gage Gein, executive producer of the Backwards K Pod. For the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Laparose Hand Cream, a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors, as well as the spices on your hands from steamed crabs and delicious crawfish boils. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing hand cream. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy foods or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fishing hand cleaner get rid of bait funk, a fish hand cleaner, wing hand cleaner, removes the spicy things around your mouth and on your hands. An ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jake. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of family. Till the end of September, Laparose Hand Cleaner is offering all BKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal, hot wing hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap, seafood hand cleaners. Buy one, get one. We only advertise products on Backwards K-Pod that Jake and I believe in and use personally. After ripping up the golf course and watching football, there is nothing I love more than throwing some bait in the water and cracking a cold bud head. You can check out these amazing products by going to crawfishhandcleaner.com or you can call the home offices at 713-588-0290. To get that BOGO deal, please use the code SUMMER23. For your fishing vacation you're planning or the shellfish buffalo wing feast you're preparing, Get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelly, spicy hands. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to BKP sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey mom, where are my poles at? I'm gone fishing. For the Dodgers tonight, Hideo Nobo, last year's Rookie of the Year with a 13-6 and mark, a 2.54 ERA, led the National League in strikeouts with 236. They are running. Sheffield strikes out, and that's exactly what happened. And he struck him out. at the top, like right there, see? That's where you got to get another like swing in or something like that, and CJ goes down. It dips, and here's a splitter right here. But he was high with it, he got the call Not anyway. The call. Level of, of play, and, and really enjoy the good times, and Chris Hammond goes down swinging now, that's six. That is strikeout number seven. For Hideo Nomo. February 3rd of 1995 for the first time. Right now, he has strikeout number 8. Well, they're loving it in Japan. That's nine strikeouts. Swing and a miss.
missed by Abbott. Nomo strikes out the side. That's 10. Now he looks like he's going fastball away. And that is five in a row. Well, when he first came into the league. On the outside corner, the strike, and that is 12. Attempted steal, and now guess what? Nomo's picked up number 13. Is number 14 in the strikeout department. He's two away from his all-time best. He got it up, and that is strikeout number 15 for Nomo. As for the appeal, strikeout, and that is 16, tying his all-time best. Hideo Nomo a new mark for Nomo 17 a magnificent performance for Hideo Nomo of Hideo Nomo, who would become the first Japanese-born baseball player to play in the major leagues since 1964, when Masanori Murakami and two other players from the Nankai Hawks were sent to the San Francisco Giants as like this for an exchange ball player deal where the three guys would get some experience against the world's best and then report back to Japan about the day-to-day goings-ons about, you know, inside American baseball. Two things would happen that would adversely affect the baseball relationship between the two countries over the course of the next three decades. Number one, the Giants quickly realized that Murakami is a beast. They like his arm, they like his size and makeup, and they quickly bring him up from single-A Fresno to the big club as a late-inning fireballing southpaw out of the bully. Number two, Murakami loves playing against the best, and in his heart, he wants to stay in the States and play Major League Baseball. He plays for the Giants for two years and excels, but the mounting pressure by the Hawks management is incessant, and he's being blackballed as like this greedy trader by the Japanese press, and eventually he returns home to resume his Nippon baseball career. The Japanese and Americans, they strike an accord that basically said all major leaguers stay in America and all Nippon players remain in Japan. And after that, that's how it stayed for over three decades. Enter stage right, Hideo Nomo, the best pitcher in Japan, Olympic silver medalist, and an ace for the Kinetsu Buffalo, which is now 
Today in 2023, the Orcs Buffaloes, by the way. He and manager Akiriyoji, they form a bond of trust and respect, and Nomo produces at an elite level for the next four years. Eventually, Oji-san is relieved of his duties, and he's re- re- replaced with a boot camp drill sergeant and Kisha Suzuki. Nomo, quite honestly, can't stand him. His old-school Japanese traditional horse shit who believes in the philosophy of pitch till you die as a remedy for a sore arm. His second year playing for Suzuki, he suffers a serious injury because of the manager's baseball theory, and he decides he wants out. Not just from the Buffaloes roster, but from Nippon Baseball League as a whole. He is 25, going to 26, and Nomo decides he wants to challenge the greatest players in the world to see where he stands in the United States. He is intent on becoming the first Japanese-born player in the bigs since Murakami back in 1996. Or, I'm sorry, 1966. He hires an agent, which was unheard of. In Japan in the early 90s, his agent, Don Nomura, enlists the help of Arm Tellum, and the two find a loophole in the Nippon Baseball League bylaws that state if a player can get voluntarily approved by their team to be put on the retirement list, there are no restrictions for that player leaving the country to play professional baseball. When the Buffaloes come around the offseason, they offer no more contract with a pay cut due to his arm problems suffered the year before. Nomo san tells the Buffaloes that he's insulted by the contract and the presence of Suzuki, who blew his arm out the year before. And now, you want to offer me less money? Well, here's what I want. And he throws out a ridiculous number that he knows the Hawks will never give him. And to top it off, he wants multi-years. Five of them. Another thing that just wasn't happening in the Nippon League, as Japanese players didn't win free agency until 1993. No one was getting multi-year deals. Now... The Buffaloes are insulted. They call Nomo-san crazy. That's how this works. Plus, you know, you got a hurt arm. And when Nomo hears that, he thinks of, you know, the 8-3 victory that saw him, 9-3 victory that saw him pitch 187 pitches a year before. And these jackasses are complaining about my arm. He shoots back, I don't need this shit in my life. I'd rather quit than play for you for one yen less or one year less than I want. If you don't meet my demands... I'm done. The owners in front office decide to let the usually stoic and reserve Nomo simmer down before approaching him again. Uh, there is no way Hideo Nomo is going to quit. But when they call a month later, Nomo hands Nomura the phone, who reiterates Nomo's threat of, give me what I want, or I'm done. The Buffalo Brass is thinking, ain't no way this 26-year-old superstar is going to walk away from all this. Now, he decided to call his bluff. If your client really feels this way, then he can take a time out and sit there and just think about it. And eventually he's going to come back. What's he going to do without baseball? Just remember, when he comes back, we own his rights, Nomura son. And Nomura, with a sly grin, replies back, I will appraise my client of all of his options. So, let me get this straight. As of now, Hideo is retired. Do, you, do we have your approval to put him on the list? You have our approval. He'll be begging to come back in a year. The two parties hang up, and Nomo and Nomura embrace. They got what they wanted. Nomo is about to test himself against the best. 
Many teams get in on the bidding war for no more services as the Buffaloes are caught with their pants down by a, you know, way of the retirement clause. And eventually the Dodgers sign Hideo in February of 1995. And now the wheels of history have been set in motion. Now, as for Major League Baseball, going into the 1995 season, there is a real disconnect between the MLB fans and the establishment as fans saw the 1994 player strike as an unrelatable argument between billionaires and millionaires that cost the fans the 1994 World Series. Many baseball fans vowed to never step foot back into a baseball stadium ever again. And, uh, you know, look, many fans would change their tune during the season on the strength of Nomo's cool factor when he arrived on the scenes. He signs a minor league deal. He shipped out to the Dodgers double-A farm team, the San Antonio Missions, where newly hired pitching coach Louis Tiant, a fellow Tornado-style pitcher himself, takes him under his wing. By the end of April, the Dodgers are convinced that Nomo is ready for the show, and they announce he will make his first start May 2nd, Versus those goddamn San Francisco Giants. Thus making him the first Japanese-born player since Murakami to play in the majors 31 years before. Murakami offers uh, him praise to the press, saying he wishes Nomo-san nothing but the best except when he plays his Giants. And maybe the Jets always motivated Hideo as he torched the Giants throughout his career with the Dodgers, especially uh, when he pitched by the Bay. His career... Uh, in his career, Nomo went 13 and 7 versus San Francisco, 4 and 5 at Chavez Ravine, but 9 and 2 in San Francisco for an 818 winning percentage in Candlestick and Oracle, respectively. Attendance was again down. Uh, only 16,099 fans showed up at Candlestick to watch Nomo pitch that first game, which is roughly 72% empty uh, compared to where it's usually at. Uh, that's a, you know that's that's a well first of all uh, Candlestick was a huge ballpark so you know with seventy two percent of it's empty it, it, it's empty the Dodgers lost at San Francisco four to three in fifteen innings millions of viewers were glued to the television in Japan at five thirty in the morning and May fifth he has five no decisions and a loss but in June he goes off and becomes the biggest baseball rock star of the big of the mid 1990s. He records his first win against the Mets 2 to 1 on June 2nd and the, and then goes undefeated for the rest of the month of June. He goes into a break with a 6 to 1 record and a 1.99 ERA, 119 strikeouts and 90 and a third innings pitched. It was probably one of the greatest Junes ever in Dodgers history, which is saying something, considering, you know, the pitching tradition of that team. In each of his six starts that month, he pitched into the eighth inning. He gave up only five earned runs and five hundred uh five and one and, and uh, I'm sorry, and he gave up only five earned runs and fifteen and third innings pitched, allowed twenty five hits, sixteen walks, and he had sixty strikeouts. His six wins that month were capped off by back-to-back complete games, 13 strikeout shutouts. No other Dodger in the history of the franchise has ever thrown back-to-back shutouts with 13 or more strikeouts. When Braves ace Greg Maddox suffers a groin injury shortly before the 1995 All-Star Game, NL manager Felipe Alou hands rookie Nomo the ball. 
Nomo pitches two innings. Saw the minute of the batters as Carlos Baerga drew a walk but was cut down stealing. He struck out three. Kenny Lofton, Edgar Martinez, and Albert Bell. And he allowed no runs. The NL would go on to win 3-2 to two on the strength of a Jeff Conine eighth-inning dong. Nomo was fantastic, but it would be the only All-Star game he would ever pitch in. By the end of the year, Nomo Mania was real. It was a real, living, organic entity as he captured the Seaman's eyes and hearts that summer. He was named the NL Rookie of the Year with a 13-5 record and a 2.54 ERA. And he leads the National League in strikeouts with 236 and 191 in the third innings pitched. In 1996, Nomo went 16-11. In his career high, 228 and third innings pitched. His performance led the Dodgers to a wild card berth after finishing one game behind the Friars in the NL West. They would unfortunately be swept by the Braves in the NLDS. Hideo started the third and final game of the series, and he gives up five runs in three and a third innings. Even though the Dodgers came up short in the World Series aspirations in 96, Nomo had two historical starts that year. The first was April 13th when he strikes out 17 batters in a 3-1 victory over the pitch. That's the clip I just played coming out of the commercial uh, into the second act here. And the other outing was his 3-0 no-no that he threw at the mighty Colorado Rockies in the theater Coors Field on September 17th. And I played that final out of the game at the very top of the show. I've seen quite a few incredible pitching performances in my day. Smoltz versus Morris, Game 7 of the 1991 World Series, the Roy Holiday uh, NLDS no-hitter versus the Reds of 2010 NLDS, 1998 Kerry Woods, 20 strikeouts versus the Astros, Pedro strikes out 15 Orioles in 2000, a game that I attended, saw with my own eyes. I've seen quite a few. I put this no-mo performance right up there with the best of them. Nomo was 3-0 against the Rocks going into that game, but the mile-high altitude had never been kind to him before this historical appearance. He had never won a game in course. Furthermore, the Rockies' lineup was stacked with offensive firepower in 1996. By the end of the year, they would lead the NL in team home runs with 221, stolen bases 201, team batting average at 290, and they led in OPS. Their lineup included 340-hit home run hitters in Andres Galarraga, Ellis Burks, and Vinny Castilla, and Dante Bouchette and Eric Young were also among the top NFL, uh, NL offensive performers that year as well. But Hideo would go on to shock the baseball universe with his 9 to nothing 8 strikeout, 4-walk dominating showing. 27 years later, it is still the only no-no thrown in Coors Field history. And there's a great chance... It may never happen again. Over the next, over the first two seasons, Nomomania was a living, breathing baseball force, but those would be the two best seasons of his career as his ERA began to slip from elite to below league average beginning in 1997. In retrospect, the conventional thought is maybe big, leader, big leaguers began to adjust to his deceptive pitching motion as relative to league averages. His rate of hits and home runs allowed significantly rose after those first two spectacular seasons, though he did continue to strike out plenty of batters. 
He also began to struggle with his command and control as well as injuries. Punctuated by a line drive off the bat of Scotty Rowland to his pitching arm in the mid-1997 season. And he had to have surgery and get those bone chips surgically removed. The injury would mar his first tenure with the Dodgers. And he was eventually moved to the Mets. The following year saw him bounce around the league from the Mets to the Brewers, Detroit, the Red Sox. And it was looking like he was destined to be a flash in the pan whose sizzle had run out. However, one of the most underappreciated things about Nomo, uh, Nomo's career was his ability to stabilize it after his initial fall from grace with the Dodgers. From 1999 to 2003, Nomo averaged a 2.8 war per season, was tied in for the 30th best pitcher during that span. In other words, he was still good enough for top of the rotation after Nomo Mania had worn off. On November 8th, 1999, Hideo Nomo became the fastest, fastest pitcher to 1,000 strikeouts behind only Roger Clemens and Dwight Gooden. Hideo still had one more historical game left in his arm when he became the first pitcher to hurl a 3 to nothing no-hitter inside Oriole Park at Camden Yards on April 4th, 2001 becoming the 35th player to throw multiple no-nos and the only the fourth pitcher in baseball history, along with Nolan Ryan, Jim Bunning, and Cy Young, to throw no-hitters in both leagues. Now, eventually, Randy Johnson would also join this exclusive fraternity. Nomo struck out 11 Orioles in the performance, and for one more season, the old, or rather younger Nomo was back. He would go 13-10 for the Red Sox and lead the American League in strikeouts with 220. And there's never been a no-hitter at Camden Yards. Fly ball, shallow left. This could do it. O'Leary, Hideo Nomo has spun the no-no against the Orioles. Second time in his major league career, the baseball record books await that young man from Japan, Hideo Nomo, second career no-hitter, first time, did it as a member of the L.A. Dodgers, oh yeah, you know he's the Heineken star of the game, no-hit performance from Nomo against the Birds tonight at the yard. In 2002, Nomo returns to the Dodgers, pitches well, a 121 ERA plus over the first two seasons back. He would suffer a shoulder injury that would hurt his uh, his team. And he bounced around some more from Tampa to the Yankees, the White Sox farm system, and finally the Kansas City Royals before hanging it up for good in 2008. According to Jaws, Nomo barely ranks among the top 500 pitchers in Major League Baseball history, and the Hall of Fame voters uh, signaled their agreement when they let them drop off the ballot after one year with only 1.1% of the vote. Of course, those actions only sell short the enormous impact Hideo Nomo had on the Major League Baseball brand that we see today. Not only was he among the most electrifying and imitated pitchers during his heyday, he opened the door wide for future Japanese players to arrive in the States and play in the MLB. 
the modern day posting system, which has been a pathway for Japanese ballers like Ichiro Matsui, uh, Daisuke Matsuzaka, Yu Darvish, Masi Tanaka, and Otani, among others, was instituted in large part because of the loophole that Nomura and Tellum discovered back in 1995. And while Murakami was the first to play in the majors, Nomo was the first superstar. Nomo Mania was real deal Holyfield. And it captured Seamhead's hearts in 1995 with the same passion and attention that we see today with Otani. Maybe even a little more because he was the first. And Nomo didn't just impact the destiny of Japanese ballplayers. He impacted the whole Asian Pacific Rim. As soon thereafter, players from South Korea, China, and Taiwan began filtering into the majors. Without Hideo taking a risk, who knows where the relationship between Asia and Major League Baseball would be today. And what it would look like here in 2023. Would we even have a World Baseball Classic without Hideo Nomo? He was the most, well, inspiration, you know. He is the inspiration behind all the influx of Japanese players today in the game. He and Nomura received a considerable blowback the years following Nomo's exodus from his island nation. To many back home, they were seen as treasonous and greedy. He could have easily stayed in Japan and played ball, but he wanted more for himself. He moved to the States, his move to the States to provoke thought for Japanese ballers, and he offered them a pathway to Major League Baseball. He was willing to risk his reputation in Japan. He was willing to risk what he had accomplished as a superstar back at home. He was willing to put it all on the line without really knowing if he would be successful. But he believed in himself. He had very little to gain and he had a shit ton to lose. And that's why Hideko, uh, Hideo Nomo is forever a pioneer in this great game that we call baseball, freaks. And... I think that's where I'm going to wrap up the Hideo Nomo bio this week. I want to thank you guys for hanging in there and listening to this tale. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed doing the research and delivering it to you. And I promise you, CMEDs, I'll try to be better next week. And while we wake our way back to Terrapin Station, let's take a look at those oh-so-lovely Hideo Nomo stats. Okay, let's see what we got here. Hideo Nomo. The Tornado, born August 31st, 1968. So in a couple days from now, he's going to be celebrating his 55th birthday. 12-year Major League Baseball career. Played with the Dodgers twice. Kansas City Royals, the Rays, the Mets, and the Yankees. The Tigers, Brewers, and Red Sox. A career war of 20.9. 323 career games. 318 as a starter. 1,976 in the third innings pitched. 8,462 batters faced. A career win-loss record of 123 and 109. 4.24 ERA. Nine shutouts, 16 complete games. 1,918 strikeouts, which was the record for most strikeouts by a Japanese-born pitcher until Yu Darvish passed it a few weeks ago in a game against the Orioles. Led the NL in strikeouts in his rookie year of 1995, and he won the AL strikeout title in 2001 with Boston and 220Ks. 1.35 whip, 4.235 whip, and a 97 ERA+. plus. Batters had a 240, 324, 398 slash against the Japanese right-hander. 
1995 AL, I'm sorry, 1995 All-Star Starting Pitcher and Rookie of the Year, 1995 June NL Player of the Month, 1996 September NL Player of the Month. And if you're looking at pitchers to compare him to, I recommend Kenny Hill, Todd Stottlemyre, maybe even Pat Henkin. What an amazing journey by an amazing person and pitcher. Thank you, Hideo Noma, for changing my sport forever for the better. You are most definitely the man, Nomo-san. You may not have the Hall of Fame stats, but you may have been the most influential player during the 90s because of your bravery and your ambitions. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages, this is the story of Hideo Nova. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, iHeart, Google Play, Apple, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, Podbean, I'm all tangled up in the web, brah. Seek, and you shall find. Please share the show with all your little CMAT buddies. If you listen on a platform that gives you the opportunity to rate and review, please do so as you see fit. I ain't scared. I do what I do when I do it. No one does it better. I'm a 400 hitter in my universe, baby. Creme de la creme. And I say that in all humidity. You got something you want to say to me? Good, bad, and different. Again, I ain't scared. You can send an email to the show backwardskpod at gmail.com. On the site formerly known as Twitter, the show handle is at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal handle is at jrobbie1. Our YouTube channel is backwardskpod. Please subscribe and share. But most of the time, I'm on social media. And it's spent in the private Facebook group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer those questions so I know you're not a bot. And come on in and join the chaos. If you live in Colorado, or maybe you're preparing to get some skiing and vacation in, please check out my dudes, Bruce and Danny, at the National Ballpark Museum in Denver off of Blaze Street. It's just a long fly ball from Coors Field. Uh, it's an incredible time portal to the throwback cribs and their history. As Danny and Bruce would love to answer your questions and show you around the joint. That's the National Ballpark Museum in Denver, Colorado, out on Blake Street. And not only do they have all the fantastic exhibits on display, but they also play yours truly on the speakers while you walk around and take in the sights. Uh, thank you, Danny and Bruce, and I appreciate you guys very much. I will never charge you freaks for the baseball content here at BKP. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play subscriptions. I will never nickel and dime you guys. I have found other avenues to get it done. I'm just going to roll up my sleeves, do the work, and come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Yogi Berra, folks. Ah, black. And with the Nomo bio getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, I now turn my attention back to I never say die baseball hydro. I reach into my Komodo, grab my katana blade, and chop the head off that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week's topic, I will be examining T-Mobile Park home of the red-hot and streaking Seattle Mariners. A few weeks ago, I gave you the story of the Seattle Pilots and the one-year debacle that became, as well as the backstory of how the Kingdom came to be. And next week, we'll be taking a look at the history of the Kingdom upgrade 
T-Mobile Park, formerly known as Safeco. But look, y'all know the deal. That's another story. Pour another pot here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories, baby. Parents, if you see your kid, they're sitting on the couch with their noses on the phone, looking bored, productive AF. By all means, take those little monkeys outside and play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me last year in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week with T-Mobile Stadium, you cement freaks. Peace.